0: Hello, and welcome to the Revelation to John. My name is JR Foresteros, and I am the teaching pastor at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene in Dayton, Ohio. You can find me on my blog at jrforesteros.com. And if you have any questions as you go through this podcast, you can email me at jrforasteros at gmail.com. That's jrforesteros at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast as well as to my sermon podcast by searching for me in iTunes or clicking the link on my blog. To aid you in going through this study, you can also download a couple of different resources, both the PowerPoint slides that I use when I teach and also a note sheet if you like to take notes and they're good things to save for later. You can download both of those things at my blog by searching for the Revelation study and then uh, each note sheet and PowerPoint slide is downloadable from The link on the Sermon Series Engine each week. Finally, a note on the format of this podcast. Uh, I am recording this as I am teaching a class, so you often will not be able to hear some of the comments and feedback that the class members make. I will do my best to say those back into the microphone for the podcast, but in case you don't hear those things, uh, I'm sorry, that's just the nature of the format and my recording limitations. All that said, thanks a lot for listening. I hope that you enjoy the podcast, and without any further ado, here is the Revelation study. Uh, We are in the third section of the book of Revelation. We started out with seven letters to seven churches. So John is a prophet. He is active in this circuit of churches in the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He is in exile on a very teeny little island called Patmos. We're not sure exactly why, but it has something to do with the fact that he's choosing to follow Christ and not the way of Rome. And he is worshiping on a Sunday. He has a vision of Jesus, and Jesus appears to him and says that he has a message, a revelation of himself to the seven churches uh, in this area. And so John is to take dictation, essentially, and then send this message to them. And we find out through the letters, that all of these churches are facing essentially the same problem. They are all trying to be faithful to the gospel and understand what that means in the face of a culture that is not faithful to God, and in the face of a culture that has other concerns. And In this case, it's the the Roman culture. And so we saw that the different churches had different ways of responding to that pressure and to that tension. Some of them uh, were driving out any false teaching, but they were doing it in a very legalistic and... uh, cruel fashion some of the churches were following jesus but it was costing them and they were suffering for it uh, some of the churches had some false teachers in them that were talking about different ways to compromise the, uh, with with rome and to compromise the gospel uh, some of the churches had become so compromised with the culture with the roman way of doing things that it was really unclear whether they were even really churches at this point Uh, They were so caught up in either their own selfishness and and ambition or in the Roman way of life that, that Jesus is saying, at this point, I'm not even really sure that you're a church in any important sense of that word. And so Jesus is revealing himself to them so that they can all determine what it means to be more faithful to him. So then after that, John takes us Wizard of Oz style behind the veil of reality. And instead of seeing what's going on on the ground, the oppression of the Roman Empire, the relative weakness of the church, we get caught up into the throne room of heaven and we see the worship that's going on up there. And we see that God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, is ushering in the end of all things and the beginning of the new creation. And we see that as... The kingdom of heaven begins to conflict with the kingdom of Rome. All of these things are happening. So Jesus is pictured as this lamb, this slaughtered lamb. And he has these, this scroll that is the will of God that's sealed. And he's popping off the seals. And all this bad stuff is happening. And then after all of that, after all of those things happen, and we're waiting for that seventh trumpet to sound and herald the end of all things, uh, we have this break, and we see what the church's responsibility in the midst of all of this is. And that is that the scroll is brought down out of heaven and John is commissioned to eat the scroll, which is a way of saying prophetically he's now responsible for the message. And we see then after that that the church is pictured as these two witnesses who are imitating the life of Jesus and bearing prophetic witness to the will of God and to the way of God in the face of the Roman Empire. And it costs them the same thing that it costs Jesus. And so through all of this, we've been seeing that there is a way of the lamb and that there is a way of the world. And those are at odds. And if Christians want to have victory they need to follow the way of jesus so that ended with the seventh trumpet sounding with heaven and earth becoming one with instead of having god who was and who is and who is to come he's just the god who is and who was because now he has come and so so we then we then we kind of hit the pause button and we say okay but wait why why is there sin why are christians suffering why isn't the way of god the way things already are right now why are we waiting and so then to get that, we went into the last section of visions in the book. And so last week, we, we began by seeing that at Jesus' reth- death and resurrection, uh, Satan was finally, ultimately, and decisively defeated and cast out of heaven and cast down to the earth. And because of that, he's furious. Uh, he's already lost. There's nothing that he can do to defeat us, except he's going to try to take as many of us down with him as possible. And so last week we saw that the dragon is on the on the earth, and he's trying to make war against the woman, against the church, but she's being protected. And so he goes off angry that he his time has almost run out to make war on the rest of her children, which is all of us. And so what we're going to ask this week and what we're going to see this week is how is the dragon going to make war on the rest of the woman's children. In other words, how is the dragon going to try to coerce the church into compromise? How is the dragon going to try to get the people of God to not be faithful to God? And if you can put some puzzle pieces together, you can kind of imagine that what we're where we're going to end up by the end of this week is we're actually going to have set up the the situation that we find in the seven letters. We're going to see how the dragon's machinations, how the dragon's armies, how the dragon's people have orchestrated things in such a way that we get a church that's very confused. And that's very compromised in some ways. And so, again, we're being taken behind the veil of reality. We're saying, we know where we started. We know how we started in this world. We know what reality looks like. We're going behind reality. We're getting to see the bigger invisible picture of how we got here. Okay? that makes sense? Okay. One little piece of background information that's going to be helpful to us this week is the, uh, the story of what is called Nero Redivivus, which is a Latin word for returned. How many of you have heard of Emperor Nero? Not the CD-Burning software, but the Roman Emperor, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, what do you know about him? Anything? Tell me anything you know about him. He was violent. Okay, good. Anything else? Crazy. Yep. Christians. Yep. Anything else?
1: Did he really play the while Rome
0: burn? Good question. Okay, yeah. So if you've, heard, if you've heard anything about Nero, you've probably heard the phrase, you know, fiddling while Rome burns or something like this. Well, that's attributed to Nero. Uh, there, the, Rome actually caught fire and a big part of the city burned while Nero was emperor. And be, we think that he had some kind of a mental disorder. Uh, he certainly acted very crazy, uh, very paranoid, very cruel, kind of a sociopathic. And, and so uh, when we're not, of course, we, no one actually knows how the fire started, but there's actually a good amount of speculation that Nero is the one who started the fire. And certainly his opponents were happy to let that, let that speculation spread because it helped undermine his authority in the city. Well, to counter that, Nero blamed Christians for starting the fire. And this let him, in the, in the early 60s, uh, initiate some intense persecutions of Christians. According to church tradition, Nero is the emperor who executed both Paul and the apostle Peter. Uh and so he is in, in especially in the first couple of centuries of Christian uh lore, he was the big boogeyman I mean, he, you know, he, he was the power. He was the representative evil emperor who hated Christians. He would, he was famous. He was the one who started putting them in the arenas to feed them to lions. He would throw garden parties and have Christians crucified. And then he would uh, soak them in tar and light them on fire to be lights for his garden parties. I'm not, not very efficient. Also, I can't imagine enjoying any kind of a party where people were burning to death around you. But that was Nero. He thought that would be a good way to demonstrate his power and his authority. And so uh, he occupied a really interesting place. And and it wasn't just Christians who were scared of him. Because he was so unpredictable, because he was so crazy, uh, all Roman people were were very leery of him. He was deposed uh, in 68, and he committed suicide. But very shortly after his suicide, a legend rose up that he was going to come back. And it was unclear, depending on who you asked or who was telling the story, whether he hadn't actually committed suicide or whether he was actually just going to rise from the dead. But but for the next 20 years, there were no less than three people who tried to invade Rome from the outside who claimed that they were Nero reborn. Uh, In fact, one of them even went to the Parthians, who were the mounted bowmen guys that Rome was always afraid of, and actually led an invasion with the Parthians into Rome. And uh, Domitian, who was the emperor during uh, when Revelation was written, uh, captured him and executed him and chased the Parthians off. So there was this legend that Nero was going to come back. And then when he was going to come back, he was going to take over Rome and, you know, kill all those people that had opposed him and, you know, fix, well, not fix everything because he was crazy, but just take everything back over. So he, he's, going, he's going to play a large, and, and again, this would have been probably about, about 30 years, uh, 20 to 30 years before Revelation was written. So he, he looms large in the background uh, of everything that's going on. All right. Let's read together Revelation chapter 13, the first 10 verses. So uh, chapter chapter 12 ended with the, the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who kept the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And so we're asking, how is this dragon going to wage war? Well, let's look. He recruits an army. So the last verse in chapter 12 says, Then... The dragon took his stand on the seashore. So, can you picture the dragon walking to the edge of the sea and standing there? And then he calls up this beast. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on its horns were ten diadems. And on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it his power and his throne and his great authority. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, which again is that three and a half years that we've seen several times. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name in his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it, everyone whose name had not been written in the book of life of the land that was slaughtered from the foundation of the world. Let anyone who has an ear listen. If you are being taken captive into captivity, you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Okay, so I found this lovely, seems to be a computer animated drawing of the beast. Uh, now what's interesting, they're, they're, We're just gonna, I'm going to kind of try to walk through the description of the beast. So if you have your scriptures in front of you, you can kind of be looking through it. But what's interesting is that the dragon summons a beast that looks exactly like the dragon. It has the seven heads, it has the ten horns, it's wearing these crowns, so visually they look the same, and that's meant to be a a signifier that whoever this beast is, he is a pawn, he is a a soldier of the dragon. Uh, And the dragon gives the beast his power and his authority, presumably so that the beast can assist the dragon in its mission, which is what? What is the dragon's mission at this point? destroy the believers and how, again let's let's keep reminding ourselves of this how can the dragon destroy believers not by killing them deceiving. yeah deceiving it i mean what again how like what what they what turn their back on yeah being uh, being faithless right tricking tricking us into into compromising or being faithless to god so again whatever this beast that's coming up out of the sea is going to be doing that's its end goal is to help the dragon deceive the people of the earth who are faithful to Christ. Get them to compromise. Get them to give in. Because remember, those who follow the Lamb cannot be hurt by the first death. Or I guess they can't be hurt by the second death, right? They can be killed, but if they're killed, they're resurrected. We, we, we share the promise of the resurrection. So death isn't actually a good weapon for the dragon to use against us. It's it's not in the dragon's interest to kill us while we're faithful to God because then we'll be resurrected. What the dragon's mission is and then what the beast's mission is is to make us compromise and to to keep us from being faithful. So let's look at uh, let's let's keep that in mind as we're reading through this. Now, to a first century reader, they would have had a lot of clues about who this beast is. And John gives us our biggest clue when we get to chapter 17. So we're going to have to wait a couple weeks to get to that. But for now, there's several things. First of all, uh, the dragon or the beast comes from the sea. And uh, anyone want to guess if this is where all of our churches are? Uh, here's the sea. Uh, anyone know their geography? Want to know what's like over here? What? Like all the way over here? You know, here? The like yeah, Greece, and then if you keep going, you get to Rome, right? So, so, it's, uh, so when the Roman government would send their envoys, they would, they would come into Ephesus because it was the biggest port city, and they would come up right out of the sea. So there's already an interesting thing that this beast is coming out of the sea uh, that, that, that uh, makes us think of that. Second of all, if you've ever read the book of Daniel, you know that Daniel has this vision of four beasts, And it's clear that John is absolutely drawing from these beasts, because Daniel's beasts are a leopard, a lion, a bear, and then this, like, ten-horned monster with these big iron jaws, okay? And uh, from early on, Jewish commentators, early Christian commentators, pretty much everyone through history has been able to identify Daniel's four beasts, right? They were these four empires that opposed the people of God. So uh, they were the... Uh, the Babylonians who destroyed the temple and conquered, uh, conquered the nation of Judah and took them off into exile. Then the Medes were the ones that conquered the Babylonians. Then the Persians conquered the Medes, and the Persians were actually the ones that let the, uh, the Israelites go back and rebuild the temple and all of that, but they still ruled over them. And then the final beast, the big, super-powerful beast that conquered everything uh, was Alexander the Great. Again, his, his empire that, that conquered everything up, up until he died. Okay? And so, and again, there's all kinds of stuff you can do to work through Daniel. But it's interesting that what, uh, what John does is he, instead of having these four different beasts that Daniel had, he smashes them all into this one big beast. Now, what would he be saying by doing that? If you have this vision in Daniel that, again, all of his readers would have been familiar with, that re- represents these four empires that all persecuted God's people. yeah and what is it what is that saying about this one okay what else and and yeah bigger what potentially is
2: three times stronger than anyone before
0: yeah yeah i mean that's you're getting the sense it's like it's scary it is fearsome it's way worse i mean it's worse than all the other ones combined right i mean it's 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 awful now there's also a sense and and you'll see this as we continue to work through all of this that, and this is what John gains by using symbolism instead of just saying hey everyone, just so you know, Rome's like the biggest, most baddest, most worst empire that's ever been around, right? By using this symbolism, he's also allowing us to kind of step out of literal history and say the way that the dragon fights against God and the people of God is by empire building there's something about the nature of empire, the nature of humanity's impulse to try to conquer and colonize that is particularly helpful to the dragon's cause to get us to be, to compromise Christ. And, so, and we've talked about this before in here. Uh, there's something about how all throughout history, if you look, there have been God's people and then there have been empires that are working counter to God's principles. One of the first acts that God does in history is to free his people from an empire. And then all the way through history, there's always people who are trying to conquer God's people, and then God's people are resisting that. You know, this happens all the way through the book of Judges, all the way through the Kings and Samuel and Chronicles and all that. That happens like, again, that culminates with Babylon, and then all and then, you know, every successive empire is like in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, they get conquered one after another by another bigger, badder empire. And so, Mike, kind of back to your point, it's it's almost like this one in a sense it's like there's there's almost there's a message that okay yeah not only are we sort of talking about Rome because that's who these seven churches were facing at the moment but there's also a message that there's always going to be another bigger badder empire I mean you you can think for a while that you're on the top but what happened to Rome are they still around today no they fell they got conquered someone else took their place and so there, there's also this there's also this picture of what happens Uh, when people oppose God. And again, particularly for John's interest right here, how that is uniquely suited to the dragon's purposes. That there's something about empire that makes it really, really hard for believers to remain faithful to Jesus. And and we're going to unpack that as we keep going. Uh, So some other things that are interesting about the beast. Uh, Rome's Caesars took all kinds of what we would consider to be blasphemous titles, uh, they can they called themselves the Son of God, because after you died as an emperor, you would you would often be deified. So after Julius Caesar died, his nephew Augustus, who took over for him, had Caesar declared a god, and then that made him the Son of God. So then when people walked around saying Jesus was the Son of God, the Romans were like, "Oh, are you talking about Augustus?" And they were like, "No, we're talking about Jesus," and that's what got them in trouble, because. Uh, because the Roman Caesars would take these titles. Domitian, who was, again, emperor probably when this was written, actually demanded during his lifetime that people call him Lord and God. So he was like, you don't have to wait till I die. You, <laughs> you can go ahead and call me God now. And so when we see that this beast has has blasphemous titles written on his head and is speaking blasphemous words, uh, that that is what the Caesars did. And again, Rome didn't invent that. Uh, i I hesitate to ask this but has anyone seen the movie 300 if you haven't i can't in good conscience recommend it but there's there's one particular scene in that film where the leader of the greeks meets king xerxes who was the king of persia and uh it's it's a wonderfully done scene that represents how those ancient rulers thought of themselves because he says i am king of kings and lord of lords which is language i was like wait a second that's in the bible like, that's God. But, again, that was, how they, that was how these ancient kings talked about themselves. And sort of like we saw last week with Isaiah's prophecy against the king of Babylon, God had a big problem with that. He said, you're not actually the king of kings and the lord of lords. I am the king of kings and the lord of lords. And if you put yourself in that place, there are bad things that are coming your way. And so, so again, we're not surprised that we see the, the beast doing these things because that's what empires do. They set themselves up like that. They demand worship and allegiance from their followers. And so what happens? The beast comes up out of the sea, and everyone marvels at it and is terrified of it, and it says, who is like this beast? No one! I mean, it's, it's a rhetorical question, right? The answer is, no one is like this beast. Who, who could make war with him? And again, it's rhetorical. They're not, they're not looking around saying, who is going? They're saying, "No, no, no one can. He's so powerful and so mighty and so fearsome that obviously the correct response is allegiance and worship and that's what they do the entire world follows after him and worships him goes his way gives him allegiance gives him obedience and John is careful to point out now what they're actually doing is they're not really worshiping the beast they're really worshiping the dragon because the dragon is the one that gave the beast all of his power and you can already start to see how John is drawing some battle lines right? right? that mm, there's God, and then there's the dragon. There's this beast, and there's the lamb. And he actually makes it really explicit uh, in this whole weird part about the little head. So he says says in verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed, and in amazement the whole earth followed the beast. So there's this head, and it seems like it died, and then it came back. And because of that, the whole earth is is following the beast. Now, what's really interesting is that the in Greek, the actual word is, um, one of the heads seemed to have been slaughtered to death. And then it recovered. And that's the exact same word that's used to describe the lamb in chapter 5. There was a lamb behold you know he says look over there the lion of Judah come conquering and then they look and he he says but I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slaughtered to death so again what the beast is actually doing here is mimicking Jesus mimicking the lamb and we have this nice little legend of Nero come back from the dead floating around that made people afraid that made people anxious about Rome that made people wary of Rome's power that helped to solidify that. And so, what we what we see is going on here in the first part of this chapter is John is casting the Roman Empire as a demonic beast that is empowered by Satan to attack the people of God. And I think I have a quote down there at the bottom. I kind of want to end this part um, because, again, I think it really gets at the power of John's symbolic language. Is this really just about Rome? No, it's not. It, that, again, otherwise John would have probably just written this letter. He says the beast is a symbol of the perpetual defiance of secular authority. Even more he represents the powers of evil which lie behind the kingdoms of this world and which encourage in society at any moment in history, not just at the end of the first century, at any moment in history compromise with the truth and opposition to the justice and mercy of God. And again, that's exactly what the, that's exactly what the dragon's goal is. Compromise with the truth opposition to god's justice and mercy
1: so is satan behind all the garments
0: in the world Uh, that is a complicated question from the perspective of the new testament there are several texts for instance in the temptation accounts that we talked about last week where satan says worship me and i'll give them all to you so it it's he seems to imply that they're his Uh, certainly revelation 13 takes that stance as well Right. Saying that, that there's this there's this uh, the dragon is empowering them I mean, to, the, to the extent that they actually look like the dragon. Uh, but you also have places like Romans 13, uh, 1 Peter, where it talks about um, governments as established by God and wielding the sword for, for justice and things like that. So so I would say at, at best, we can safely say it's complicated and, and we should at least be careful and be wary and again, for me, the the one of the best things to do is you look at how they act and how they talk, and if they're setting themselves up as emperors, as as men, as gods in and of themselves, uh, if they if they are opposed to the truth and opposed to the justice and mercy of God, we we don't even necessarily have to just say, well, obviously they're Satan possessed, but we can just say like that's not going to end well, and we better not be a part of it. I mean that 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 is that is that we can certainly say either way. Um, so, yeah. How about that? <laughs> it is it is complicated. Uh, Lot again, lots of ink has been spilled to try to figure out that question. Uh, okay, let's talk about the land beast. This is this is interesting. So there's lots and lots and lots of pictures on the internet of the sea beast, but you try to find the land beast, and you just get like him hiding in the background. So uh, it's it's interesting. So. Uh, we're just going to read, yeah, we're going to go ahead and read the rest of the chapter, and then we'll work back through it. Then I saw another beast, in verse 11. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It ex- exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth inside in the sight of all. And by the signs that it had been allowed to perform on behalf of the beast... It deceives the inhabitants of the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark that is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. All of you heavy metal fans know what's coming next. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. Cue dramatic music. Okay. So, who is this land beast? We have, we have a few things in here. We have the, we have the land beast and then we have this image of the beast that the land beast establishes, and then we have the mark of the beast. So we're going to try to take all of those uh, pretty quickly in succession, and then we'll get into some discussion. Okay, so this is the final kind of line in the sand was we're establishing boundary lines. The sea beast, which is this Rome, this empire, is called forth from the sea, and it looks like the dragon. Okay, But the land beast arises from the land, which is why I called it the land beast, uh, almost as a response to the sea beast. It's like it's like the sea beast emerges from the sea and comes up onto the shore to wage the dragon's war. And then because it comes up, this land beast just sort of emerges to greet it, as almost what it feels like to me. Uh, now, if we're, when we're trying to figure out who this is, I, this is one of my favorite parts of the book. I think it's one of the, mo- the coolest uses of symbolism that John does. This beast looks like the lamb but it sounds like the dragon Okay, it has two horns like the lamb but it speaks like the dragon so so anyone want to take a shot at who this is okay <laughs> who is there anyone we've seen in this book so far that looks like the lamb but sounds like the dragon uh, let's break it down what would it mean to look like the lamb who is the lamb Jesus. So who looks like Jesus, but is speaking the words of the dragon?
1: I hate to say this, but you're not talking about the Pope, are
0: you? Some people say that, but no. Because again, now remember, why why we're not is because in in the first century, there was no Pope yet. We're about 400 years too early for that. Okay, so again, who in the first century context, who when these original hearers were hearing this letter and John said, now there's someone on the land. So they're not coming off the boat from Rome. They're not part of the Roman and we're not talking about a governor from Rome or soldiers from Rome or something like that. They're from the land and they look like Jesus. But they're speaking the dragon's words.
1: People that were
0: in the church were really yeah 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 who I mean what's the problem that we've seen in these in these some of these churches yeah there are people in these churches who are advocating compromise compromise with whom Rome compromise with the Empire compromise with the dominant culture and so John says look I know they look like the lamb. Just like at Sardis, you have the reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead.
2: First John, he talks about the spirit of the Antichrist, so I guess that would make sense.
0: Yeah. And who, and do you know in First John, who 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 is the spirit of the Antichrist, or what is the spirit of the Antichrist?
2: Anyone that doesn't proclaim Christ as a savior, and uh, they're, they're
0: not of the church. Yeah, even though they're in the church. Right? In 1 John, these are people who are inside the church, but who are not proclaiming Christ. And so John says, look, they're they're among us, but they're not of us. And and we see the same, we've seen that since the first couple chapters, right? We've seen that there are people in the churches who are advocating things that are not of Christ. And so John comes right out, and he's like, in case you thought I was pulling punches before. They look like the lamb, but they are speaking the words of Satan. And so now, now we see the dragon's army, right? We're starting to get a sense of his battle strategy. Not only has he brought in this conquering sort of empire force, but now he's using people who are in the culture, who are from natives, so to speak, Right? who are insiders who are advocating compromise who are saying it's okay you, you, can, you can do the Jesus stuff and you can do the Rome stuff and it's okay so what do they do how, how, how do they and here we're going to go a little bit more abstract we're going to talk a little bit more about just the nature of what happens in empires in general and if we want to get a little bit back more into what the first century looked like we can but i'm a, i will just lay my cards on the table i'm a lot more interested in talking about what this looks like for us today in our culture so i uh, so we can we can talk specifics but the first thing that we see is that this this land beast creates an image of the beast and then he breathes life into that image so that those who don't worship it are killed. Okay? Now, this is a Nero coin. Uh, basically, every time they had a new emperor, they would make a new coin, and you, you they'd mint a bunch of new coins. I don't know what they did with the old coins, and I assume they would still be useful, because they're made out of, like, gold and stuff, but uh, you would you would make all your own coins if you became emperor, with your face on it, sort of. And, uh, and the, and, and, and the Greek, the word that was used to describe this, was image, icon, image. So when when John says that he creates an image of the beast, immediately the probably hundreds of images of the Caesar that these people saw every day would have sprung their mind. And what's interesting is how this echoes language that we find in the scripture. And how many of you uh, you know the story? In the Gospels, where they try to trick Jesus, and they they say, "Now, who sh- who should we pay taxes to? Should should we pay taxes to Caesar or not?" And uh, and Jesus says, Gi- "Give me your coin." And they give him a coin. And then he says, "Whose image is on this coin? Whose icon is on this coin?" It's the same same idea. And then they say, "Caesars." So he, so then, what's his answer then? Render
1: to Caesar what Caesar. And. and God him, what yeah. So yeah.
0: Okay. Caesar's <coughs> Caesar's image is on this coin this coin, like they all are, okay? So you give Caesar the things that have Caesar's image. Now the unspoken second part of that, the unspoken second question is, if we're to give Caesar the things that have Caesar's image, then we're to give God what has God's image on it, and what has God's image on it? Yeah, us. So look at, uh, we're going to go back to the creation story. These these are things that you guys have probably heard before, but I I pulled from Genesis 1 and then uh, Genesis 2. God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And if you skip down to Genesis 2, something else interesting happens. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. And the man became a living person. So in, in our creation story, God creates us as his image bearers and then breathes life into us. And it's fascinating to me that that's the exact same thing that the land beast does in chapter 13. He creates an image of the beast, and then he breathes life into it. And if you remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about rival eschatologies and how every, not even every empire, but every person has ideas about the way the world works. Every person has ideas about... This is the way things should go. And, of course, we all think that if people would just do the way I think we should do things, the world would be a better place because I'm right, obviously. And if you if you uh, multiply that, if you blow it up to the size of an empire level, that's actually just the same impulse. An empire is just a country that decided the world would be a whole lot better if everyone did things their way. And so they took their armies out and they conquered everyone to make everyone do everything their way. And it's the, it's the exact same prideful, sinful impulse that that lies in our own individual decisions. And so every empire, every person, puts forth an idea of what will make us complete as people. We've been talking about it in the first century as the Pax Romana, right? Rome said if you want to be healthy, safe, secure, satisfied in your life, you do things our way. If you want to be a whole person, if you really want to live life fully the way you can and should be a good Roman citizen. That was their image that they portrayed. And they create it and they breathe life into it and they put it out there. And Revelation here particularly in chapter 13 does something really interesting because by by keeping this idea of the image of humanity, this false image of humanity, this false expectation for what makes us really human, by keeping it really grounded in this like strong historical symbol making it like a statue, well we have we have a word for that too. If we are the image bearers of God, what is the word that we give to false images of God? Yeah, like a statue, right? We say those are idols. We say those are false pictures of God. And we can say the same thing about these false eschatologies, that they're, they're actually false promises, false pictures of what makes us fully human. And again, it's in the beast, both beasts, best interest, if they're really trying to conquer us. The way that they do that is they say, well, yeah, God has this way that you can become fully human. it's too hard it's too messy wouldn't you rather have our way? isn't this easier? isn't this better? does that make sense? okay I'll assume that that means yes <laughs> um, I have another, another uh, yeah another quote for you there uh, at the bottom of that section it says if adam and eve are fashioned in the image of god who breathed life into them at the creation so the second beast fashions a false image of what it means to be human enticing men and women to exchange their god-given glory for a cheapened form of existence so empires always set up a false picture of humanity always that's what they do they say our way is really the best way if you want fill in the blank whatever whatever promises they want to make then then do it our way and we know because we've peeked behind the veil of reality we know that that's not true we know that they can't deliver on their promises okay now let's talk about the mark of the beast because here here's oh yeah go ahead mike sorry go ahead back up. You yeah. showed
1: the picture of the coin, right? Yes. With the image on it.
0: Yes. Do
1: you think that um, empires give money a certain kind of life?
0: Or bring
1: life in, it in some way?
0: Yeah, talk about that a little bit.
1: Uh, I don't know. It just seems that whatever the beast did here wasn't really real. I mean, life wasn't like we see God life. like people. Mm-hmm. It might have been something
0: well and and what we've been seeing in some of the churches was that part of part of the ways that they had to compromise with the culture would be for instance if you were a business person in the ancient roman empire you were a part of some kind of a guild just like we have unions today and every guild meeting started with sacrifices to whichever god you know if you're a shipbuilder you you have your little ceremony for the God of shipbuilding. Again, just like lots of union halls today open with a prayer to God. And it was it was just part of the thing that you did. So what happens if you become a follower of Jesus and you go to your your guild meeting and all of a sudden you go, oh, yeah, guys, I'll just wait outside while you do that? Yeah. And, 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 let's say they didn't even get kicked out. Let's, let's say Mike and I are both shipbuilders. Okay, and Abby wants to build a ship, and so Mike is a Christian, and he's not participating in the dedication ceremonies anymore. He's not participating in the guild prayers anymore, and all of that stuff. And so she comes to she comes to me, and she's like, "Hey, I'm looking for a shipbuilder. You know, I know Mike's a little bit cheaper, but what do you think?" And I'm like, "Well, I mean, do you really want a guy that's basically an atheist? I mean, he's not he's not." gonna pray your ship up right he's not gonna be do you really want to invite that kind of curse on your ship when you get it built i mean i guess you can take your chances with him there's a reason he's cheaper you know you can imagine i mean you can just imagine that right how how because because he's not participating in the dominant culture anymore how that's going to have all kinds of implications but at least economic implications right so when you say does money have a life that the empire i would say absolutely it does you know, we talk about the stock market today like it's a living thing, right? People monitor it. We have charts that measure its health. It can control people's moods.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to pick this all back up in the Mark of the Beast, so let's move on and talk about it a little bit. Okay. So uh, if you were here the first couple of weeks, you probably remember a discussion we had about something called gemetria. It's an ancient number play. And again, essentially what we're seeing here is parodying the beast as Jesus. So again, even though the land beast is administering these marks, it's the mark of the sea beast. Just like the image, even though the land beast is the one empowering this image, it's the image of the sea beast. So 666, whatever it is, is something that's pointing us back to the sea beast. Uh, and, and, and what you'll see is that it's, again, parodying. Uh, it's, it's pointing out the parody of uh, that the sea beast is almost Jesus but not quite. So if you were an ancient reader of this text and you, you were told, now this is going to take some wisdom, but you can figure it out. The name is the number of a person. It's 666 you would immediately start thinking of names of people whose numbers added up to 666, because this is what people did with their numbers. If, uh, again, if you were here uh, back at the beginning, you remember that in the excavation of Pompeii, one of the cool things about Pompeii is because it was covered, that's uh, not cool that it was covered with ash so quickly, but a uh, an unfortunate uh, fortunate for us, unfortunate for the people side effect of that is everything was preserved almost perfectly, including graffiti. And we have almost no record of ancient graffiti because it's graffiti and it's by nature very temporary and so when they excavated Pompeii they found out that there's just graffiti all over everything in the ancient world people love to draw pictures they love to write and all of this stuff and so what people would do with ancient numbers is uh, like I'm sure many of us have done this. say you, you create an alphabet code right A equals 1 B equals 2 C equals 3 and then you write little codes to each other and stuff well ancient people loved to do that and they played with numbers all the time and letters and all of that and so that every person's name had a number of their name, and you would just add up the number of your name, and you'd figure it out. So in Pompeii, they found a piece of graffiti that said, uh, "I love her whose number is, and it was like, you know, 183 or whatever, whatever the number was." And you can imagine that when when all of the uh, the women of the town walked past that, they'd all start you know giggling and trying to figure out who you know whose number is that up to 183, and that, you know, and they just did this all the time. It was as you find it in ancient documents all over the place. So when they saw The number is the number of a person, and it's 666. They would have started trying to figure this out. Now, what's fun about the number 666 is apparently, if you're creative enough, you can actually make almost anyone in the world's name add up to 666. So I'm pretty sure every U.S. president since we started having them has been identified somehow as 666. Uh, I did a Google search one time and I went, I went as far back as Reagan and all of them moving forward from Reagan, some, someone somewhere on the internet had demonstrated some way, even if he had to translate it into Portuguese, uh, that it was 666. <laughs> okay. um, Bill Gates, I've seen. Every pope, same kind of thing. In fact, uh, during the Protestant Reformation, both Martin Luther and the reigning pope had identified each other as the Antichrist and demonstrated how each other's names were 666. So uh, there, there's a sense in which uh, there's a system which trying to figure it out and doing all the head-scratching uh, It can get to a point where it's just not helpful anymore. Um, and again, what, what is actually more interesting than the specific identification of who the mark belongs to is what happens with the mark. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But I just want to demonstrate for you uh, what most biblical scholars have identified as the cause of that. So if you take the words Nero Caesar, which are his title you can see here on his coin, and you transliterate them from Greek into Hebrew. Okay, so you just make take the Hebrew letter and the Hebrew letter e the he, you know you just transliterate it into Hebrew. And then you add up those numbers, it adds up to 666. So, that's that's a it's complicated enough for John to say now that you're going to have to scratch your head about this a little bit. But it's also simple enough that probably someone in John's congregation would have cracked it without a whole lot of trouble. Okay. Like that that's not actually a very hard gematria code. Uh, so, so most scholars, and again, there, there, there's not there's no such thing as consensus because you can find out how someone identified Bill Gates and Steve Jobs both as 666. So, uh, but most biblical scholars agree that it probably, again, is a reference back to Nero, and knowing what we know about Nero and how he figured into the early Christian uh, imagination, it, it makes a lot of sense to say that this big bad empire is being led by the big bad boogeyman of all boogeymen. You know, there's there's some benefit in saying that the person who is at the head of this evil monster is the, the evilest person of all time. Sort of like today, if you want to, if you're in politics and you want to argue that someone is no good, you see how quickly you can compare them to Hitler. Right? I mean, we've all seen this, right? So-and-so believes this, and that leads to that, and that leads to that, and I mean, that's Hitler. Right? Now, the, the rhetorical benefit of that is everyone thinks Hitler's a really bad guy. And so, if you can identify the person that is your opponent with Hitler, then rhetorically you've alienated your audience from that person. Right?
1: But was Caesar dead?
0: Nero, yeah. Nero would have been dead and gone. Just like, again, just like today, Hitler's dead and gone. Right? But his name is still very useful uh, if you are careful with it. So, I mean, again, Nero would have occupied roughly the same kind of space. I mean, really, really bad guy, sort of almost took over the world, definitely. A few tools short of a full toolbox, or whatever the saying is. Um, scary, right? So, okay. So now, what's uh, oh the uh, some other things that are just some interesting observations about the number. First of all, as we've talked about in here already, the number seven is the number of perfection or divinity, and so that six 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 is one short of seven. Is like it's, you know it's missing the mark. It's almost but not quite there. And then also, the early church really enjoyed the the Gematria of Jesus' name, because Jesus adds up to 888. And so in Christian theology, we talk about Jesus as the the firstborn of a new creation. We talk about, uh, some people talk about Easter Sunday as the eighth day, because it's the first day of a new creation week. And so they really liked, they really liked that 8 kind of fit in with all of that. And so again, you have 666 six, six, as compared to 888 eight, eight, as compared to 7. And it, there's just, again, lots of layers of, of symbolism to this. So, uh, the mark, how the mark is administered is a parody of what happened in chapter 7 to the the believers, right? If you remember, after the great earthquake, there was this question, who can stand the wrath of the Lamb and the one who is seated on the throne? And then we had this pause and we had this rewind, and we saw that before the wheels started coming off and before everything started getting bad, uh, all of the followers of God on the earth were collected together and sealed. And a seal was placed on their forehead and specifically it was placed there so that they could withstand the wrath of the Lamb and the one who is seated on the throne. And so now we have here again, what is, the, what is the land beast doing? He's sealing the people who are following him. Right. The same way that the believers were sealed in chapter 7. Um, and then back to, Mike, what you were already talking about a little bit earlier. There are particular economic sanctions that are applied to the seal. If you do not take the seal of the beast, if you do not receive his mark, you may not buy or sell you may not participate in the daily life of the economy of the empire if you do not show allegiance to... And again, we know that some of the churches were facing these kinds of things. And we know that others weren't, particularly because they were compromising. Right? The Laodiceans. The Sardines. We know that because of the way they were choosing to live, they were compromised, and Jesus says as much when he addresses his letter to them. So, so essentially what we have here is John putting it on us and saying, who will you follow? What mark will you bear? Who's going to seal you? And in, and uh, go ahead and turn over to 14. I want to read just the first couple verses here because all we've been doing so far is seeing the dragon's army, right? And it's it's pretty depressing. It's pretty fearsome. It's pretty awe-inspiring and terror-inducing. And, yeah, go ahead, Mike.
1: Romans have a...
0: You know, slaves got tattoos, uh, and then they had a they had a sort of uh, Roman citizens had a, a kind of like an it was like an ID card, except obviously they weren't like plastic laminated little pieces of paper. They were more like clay tablets that basically were proofs of citizenship. So there were some things there were some things like that. Yeah, good. So. A little bit of a pick-me-up right before we get into discussion. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were one hundred and forty-four thousand, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have, not been, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from humankind as first fruits for God and for the lamb. And in their mouths no lie was found. They are blameless. So now we see the lamb's army, right? We've seen the dragon's army. Now we see the Lamb's army. And the Lamb's army is comprised of that 144,000, the sealed believers who are the people of earth who have been faithful to God. And we know they've been faithful because the text presents them as virgins, which means they haven't been committing spiritual adultery, spiritual fornication. We know that no lie has been found in their mouth. They're blameless, they're, they have integrity, they're not, they're not being pushed back and forth by the winds of compromise. And so where we're where we're stopping in the text today, we have the battle lines drawn. We have the 144,000 who have been sealed by God, and then we have all of the peoples of the world who have been sealed by the dragon. And the question becomes, whose side are you on? And do you know what's at stake in this? Are you deceived? Are you compromised? Are you being faithless? Or are you holding true to the Word of God? Are you holding true to the testimony of the Lamb? And we're going to spend the rest of our time together unpacking what all of that means. But I promise that I would leave some space for questions and for a discussion of this approach to this chapter, so let's do that first. Do
1: think the 144,000 is a real number? Or is it like 12 times
0: Twelve times twelve times ten times ten times ten, which would be the whole people of God, all over the world. Right. I think it. I think it's meant to be. Uh, it's meant to be a huge number. I think it's meant. It's meant to. It's meant to help us try to get a, a handle on all of the people who follow God in the whole world. Which today, since there are something like two and a half billion Christians, we're like uh, undershot a little bit. But back then, when Christianity was still relatively new, you know, sixty years old or so and they probably way less than 144,000 Christians. So, yeah, I think I think it's supposed to be symbolic. Though the Jehovah's Witnesses disagree. <laughs> so is it supposed to
2: be a big number or a small
0: number? It's supposed to be a big number. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the ancient readers have heard it as a big number. Again, imagine that you're meeting in a house church with maybe 10 other people and you're, you know, you're facing persecution and all of this stuff and you're 144,000 you look around at your nine friends and you're like, that's pretty good. <laughs> so,
1: we know it's a great number because somewhere it says in the Bible about this, thousands of thousands.
0: Yeah, that's actually right after in chapter seven. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mir- uh, the the huge yes, yeah, a countless multitude. Yeah, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of tens of thousands. So, so. take
1: heart. Yeah, we're not gonna be left out.
0: <laughs> Again, it's 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 interesting. The Jehovah's Witnesses treated this as a literal number and it was a great recruiting strategy until they got 144,000. <laughs> because they could be like, there's only a few spots left. Get in while you can. And then everyone got in and they were like, okay, so actually those are just the ones who are going to go to heaven and then everyone else still gets to live on a restored earthly paradise that's perfect. So, be careful. <laughs> other, other comments, other questions, other thoughts about this I mean, I, you know, there's all kinds of discussion about the mark of the beast, about the, the beast from the sea, the Antichrist, all of that kind of stuff. Is this where the
1: Catholics get
0: the idea that the should be uh, celibate? Uh, okay, so, no, I don't think so. Um, I actually had a conversation with a good friend of mine who's a priest about that. And I've, I've said, you know, Peter had a mother-in-law, like that's in the Gospels. So obviously your first pope was married, like, right. and, and he said, oh, it's not a scriptural thing that is why priests are celibate it's just church tradition and they keep it out of respect for the tradition and they don't try to justify it with scripture at least the ones that I have met don't and they're uh, relatively unapologetic about it look at so but they could if they wanted to other thoughts, questions, comments you guys just want to get into application I can see, okay great let's do that then so let's talk about the so what. I love this picture because we get all of... We get the army. And I, I don't know if the people... Yeah, I don't... I actually didn't look... I hope that's not like actual people, historical figures. Because I didn't mean for it to be a political statement. Um, they haven't. And I, I don't know why not. I, it would be so awesome. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you've got the dragon there who stands on the edge of the seashore. You've got the sea beast that comes up out of the sea. You've got the... Land beast, which looks like a werewolf to me, uh, coming up out of the crack in the ground and then calling down fire on people, and you got the image of the beast way in the background there, and people, I think, are getting 666 on their hand. So it just crammed the whole chapter into one picture. It's impressive. Um, and I think that might also supposed to be Mount Zion, 144,000 on it. I can't really tell, like like, down in there. I don't know. So if any of you are feeling artistic this week and you would like to create a better picture I will be happy to showcase it so okay so I want to make some observations here uh, in this in this line drawing that's going on there are some clear uh, uh, clear comparisons that are being made. Uh, in particular, one is how the beast uses power versus how the lamb uses power. So, again, we've already, uh, I already kind of mentioned that the beast is supposed to be a parody of the lamb, but I, I wanted to show you how much the text does that. So the sea beast is fathered by the dragon, right? where the lamb is birthed and therefore mothered by the woman who has the moon under her feet and the sun for a hat and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, the beast wears blasphemous titles, which like the Caesars would call themselves the son of God, whereas Jesus actually is the son of God. And, and so his titles are not blasphemous. They're just legitimate titles when he says things like, I'm God and I'm the son of God and I'm Lord. Uh, the beast was slaughtered and then resurrected and Jesus was slaughtered and then resurrected. Uh, the beast was given his authority by the dragon. The lamb was given his authority by the one seated on the throne who his hand the scroll. And then the beast is wearing these ten crowns on the earth, which are supposed to represent his, his power and his authority on the earth. But the lamb rules in heaven. And so, again, when we look behind the veil of reality, you say, well, it looks sure looks on earth like the beast is awfully powerful. When we look behind the scenes, we see that, no, there's only ever been one person who's been seated on the throne. Uh, and so it doesn't matter what it looks like on earth. We know how the story ends. Uh, we know what the truth is.
1: So the the sea beast was slaughtered and resurrected. Is that a comment on being like the lamb, or on being like what they thought might
0: happen with Nero? Both. Okay. Yep. And again, it's the so so John is able to use that Nero myth to talk about how empires try to mimic God. Empires try to usurp the place of God, and so here you know here's a great example of what what granted Christ His authority was his death and resurrection you know it's at that point that all the nations are put it under his feet and then and, and the earth has made a footstool to him and all of these kinds of things and so we shouldn't be overly surprised that we see peop- we see empires in the world who are trying to follow these same kinds of pattern because it was after the beast was wounded and then resurrected that the world marveled and followed him like oh even death can't keep him down wow you know and and john's like yeah we did it first <laughs> well, I that
1: the peace
0: yes. was a deception I mean, Yes at least, yeah and yes, absolutely So another interesting comment that John makes uh, at the, in 138 is he says that Jesus is the lamb that was slaughtered from the foundation of the world. And so it's interesting that the moment that God created, the moment that God founded the world, the moment that God created beings, who had free will that could and would pursue their own way that would build empires whether it was just in my own house or whether I tried to take over the world whatever the size of my empire as soon as God did that then God committed to the cross that the the lamb was slaughtered from the foundations of the world because God is not the kind of a God who is content to allow creation to perish. God is not the kind of God who will create something and then give us over to our own destruction. He will rescue and redeem us. And so God's empire is established on this world. God's kingdom is established in this world, not by coercion, not by fear, not the way that the dragon and the beast are obtaining worship. God's is established. Jesus is enthroned by dying. And that's what we've been seeing all the way through this book. When we talk about what is the power of the Lamb, how does Jesus conquer? Well, it's by dying. And how are Christians faithful to Jesus? Not by fighting back, because the the war against the dragons has already been won. There's no battles left to fight. All we do is stay faithful. And it's the beast who's the one that tries to convince us otherwise. The beast is the one who tries to get us up in arms against each other. The beast is the one who convinces us that if we don't participate in what the empire is doing, then we're going to get conquered and destroyed and our packs, our peace, is going to be taken from us. And God says, mm, "That's not my way. My way looks like a slaughtered lamb. My way looks like a cross. And so, if you're taken captive into captivity, you're going to go. But take heart. This is a call. For, this is a message of faithfulness for the saints. Be faithful. Don't compromise. Don't give in."
1: The
0: yeah. Because what does he say?
1: Well it says, if he killed by a sword, you must be killed with a
0: sword. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I mean, and again, so put this so put this in context of what John has been doing in this whole chapter. Who in this chapter is using the sword? I mean who who is who is yeah, who is using fear and the threat of death to enforce their power? Rome is. And so he says, Look, if you if you if you per- yeah, and again, we saw we saw that in chapter 6 with the four horsemen, right? That was that same message. If you buy into the Pax Romana, well, look what the Pax Romana gets you. Rome can't save you from death. So go ahead, I mean, and again, the message is sort of like, go ahead, I guess, like, compromise. But, but you need to know what the stakes are. If you follow this way, this is the only way that story ends. Rome's story does not have. It's not choose your own adventure.
2: So um, I know we keep reflecting back to the past, but Revelations talking about the future events. When we talk about the mark of the beast, are you still believe that it's going to be a physical mark that we're going to have to accept or not accept? Or you think? Are you saying? symbolic past
0: event. I would, I would say this about the... mark, And actually, that's, that's where we're going next. So good. Um, I would say this about the Mark of the Beast. There, there may at some point in the future be an actual physical some sort of thing you have to get on your body, in your body, whatever, to show allegiance to a particular ruler. President, Prime Minister, Emperor, who, you know, who, who knows. Whatever. Uh, but... I think that there are lots of ways that then and now we are being told to show our allegiance to a way of life that is not the way of God. And so uh, I think the way that some people choose to organize their schedules uh, looks a lot more like the American way than the way of God. I think the way that some people choose to engage in friendships, in rela- well, I should say relationships because I don't think they're really friendships. The way that some people choose to, to engage in friendships looks a lot more like uh, an American cultural way, or uh, I would even maybe just say like a 21st century Western way. It's not particularly, it doesn't end at our borders, you know.
2: The reason I ask is because, and I'm not going to be able to tell the verse in Revelation, sure. but I thought there's a verse that says that those when the mark of the beast is shown to everyone, they will know what it is. Mm -hmm. It actually says something like they will know what the mark of the beast is and what it means. As far as from a spiritual standpoint, they will understand that this is the mark of the beast that is proclaimed in the scripture. Uh,
0: The only place I'm... The only place top on my head I know that talks about the mark is right here. And it, it doesn't say that it doesn't talk anything about like a like an, a knowing kind of thing. And, and yeah, I don't. I, I'm not familiar You're with that. Go ahead. Yeah. When he
2: when he brought that up, of the, uh, those that use the sword will die by the sword, mm-hmm. or whatever. It fo- follows right after. It talks about the mark. Mm-hmm. That verse almost directly follows that. And what I've always plugged into my brain is um, so if you didn't have the mark. Buy or sell? Mm -hmm. You couldn't really do anything, right? So I picture things like if I'm at my house at some future date and I'm not taking the Mm -hmm. mark, my family's starving. They're going to come try to take my kids because I'm not adequately providing Mm -hmm. for them, and the government's going to intervene. My first instinct is sure over my dead body. Yeah, you're going to take my kids, and it's going to be. Sword. That yeah, that moment where I'm going to have to say, where do I stand? I, it's telling me yeah. not to do that. Yeah. Rele- releasing the most precious things I have and standing fast. Just you know, mm-hmm. that's always the picture I have mm-hmm. pictured as the conflict.
0: So that same, I mean, so that same conflict is is arguably what some of those first century families would have faced, right? If I'm if I can't. If, if I don't pray to the shipbuilding God before the meeting and then I don't get to build ships then my, I don't have food for my kids and maybe there's no government agencies that are going to come and take them away but they starve to death so this, it's that same, the same kind of conflict I, I think which is right. the, the issue of like when it really comes down to it and like it is a matter of life or death do you cling to your life or do you cling to God even at the cost of your life so so again, like at some future date, may that be something that we explicitly off face? Sure, like absolutely it could be. But I think also, on a lot of levels, that's a choice that we also need to be aware of and watching for right now. Uh, in in explicit in, in more subtle ways. Like I want them to make clear that, that they are more subtle, and that's that's the the problem with it. You know? If at some point some obviously evil person takes over the United States and gives us obvious marks in our hands or our foreheads, and we can be like, that's very clearly the mark of the beast like then that's going to be a lot easier to draw these lines and to portion things up and say well they're they're taking the mark and we're not taking the mark and it's pretty easy to tell if you've compromised i think it's a lot harder to tell right now when when things are much more subtle uh, and that's that's what to me is interesting about this question is well if we assume that the mark can be more than than only a literal mark uh, then then can that help us see places in our own lives where we are tempted to compromise right now So,
1: well, you were drawing parallels before between the the beast, the sea beast, I guess, and land power.
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway, the mark of the land is really the Holy Spirit, right? Yes. The seal. The seal. And we almost talk about it as being something physical, but we know it's not. Mm -hmm. So, the parallel would be on the the side of the beast that maybe it's really something. A lot more
0: subtle. Yeah. Could be, yeah. And, and let's, okay, so let's look. You guys, I love how you transition for me. Um, the question is, whose side are we on? And, and just like the sea beast was parallel to the lamb, the land beast is parallel to the church. So the land beast is led by the sea beast, but it sounds like the dragon. While the church is shepherded by the lamb, it's led by the lamb. The land beast bears witness to the sea beast, the church bears witness to the lamb. The land beast does wonders in the beast's name. If you remember the story of the two witnesses, so did the church. The land beast shows the world the beast's image, and that's the church's call as well. We are the image bearers of Christ in the world. And then the land beast is sealed with the sea beast's mark, and then the believers are sealed by God, by the Holy Spirit, as Mike pointed out. And so... So I want to offer you some questions, and we'll break you guys into some groups real quick here at the end to do some discussion. I have some questions that I think will help us get at all of these. So, first of all, are there false images of humanity that our culture celebrates? Are there false images of humanity that our culture celebrates? Just like the land beast created this false image of humanity said, if you really want to be fully human, this is what you do. So do, do, do people in our culture, do? does our culture do that today? And if so, what are they? I mean, talk about what they are a little bit. And then two, kind of on that first part, how does the church participate in perpetuating those false images? How are we sometimes the land beast? How are we sometimes bearing witness not to the lamb, but to the dragon? And then, uh, and then more having to do with the mark of the beast, uh, what, what does taking the beast's mark look like today? Are there things that we do in the church to make our lives easier in our culture that we know are not the way of God? Are there things that we do in our church to make life easier in our culture, to get along better, that we know probably aren't really what God would have us to be doing, and then focus on those three. The last one I was going to say I was go, I, I didn't point out when we were going through the mark of the beast, but it's interesting that there people are even reduced to commodities. Um, what really just ends up mattering is our buying and selling. So I was going I was going to have you talk about how how our culture reduces us to commodities and how the church can resist that. So uh, focus on those first three questions if you have time. Uh, which would impress me, uh, then talk about that fourth question. Uh, but go ahead and I'll just give you guys probably about uh, about 10 minutes to do that, and then we'll come back together. So break into some little groups around you, groups of three or four, and uh, we'll come back together in a few minutes.
1: Okay, finish up the thoughts that you're on. We'll bring it back together. Exactly how... Okay,
0: briefly, what are some false images of humanity that our culture celebrates? What did you talk about?
2: Can
1: we talked about titles and okay. power and money and things, you know, like a football star or president.
0: Okay, yeah, good. So if you want to be a full human, then it's climbing the ladder, it's getting to the top, getting the power, getting the prestige, getting the fame. Good. Yeah. One who dies with most toys wins. That kind (laughs) of stuff, right? Good. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. What else? I know this group talked about stuff because I was listening to you guys. (laughs) But you guys were really hitting on a lot of the athleticism and the same kind of like uh, cosmopolitan culture, right? That there's a particular physical look that if you want to be happy especially women in our culture are told that a happy woman is a woman who looks a certain way right
1: a sexual revolution yeah idea yeah my boy philosophy yep a person who attends
0: church person who attends church is happy good <laughs> good
2: <laughs>
0: okay how does the church participate in perpetuating those false images sometimes not always Okay, good, yeah, we set up we set up churches where that's comfortable to do. Yeah. Okay, good, what else?
1: Well we said so we encourage some of those characteristics to come to our church.
0: Yeah, how? Why?
1: Well, because we want to be the church with the, the, the local mayor attends to or the superintendent or the football star or mm-hmm. whatever. We we want to be the church. Good. And to be hit you've got
2: to have those cultural celebration
0: Good. Yeah, what else?
2: compromising in areas that we probably shouldn't.
0: Okay, good talk about that.
2: Uh, well we were talking about differences in uh, in how we dress forty years ago. The Nazarene church has been through rules about, you know, wedding rings and shorts and going to movies and and those things seem to have just kind of been buzzed out or whatever over, you know, know
0: We got a shorts wearer in here. That <laughs> no, was, you know, yes. Uh, particularly when we talk about how we how we view our bodies and how culture t- teaches us to treat our bodies, a lot of times we're, that's something we're uncomfortable talking about in the church. So we kind of just don't talk about it. And then when we don't talk about it in the church, everyone in the church is sort of ends up doing what everyone in the world does because no one's saying anything different. And maybe it's a little bit of a slower creep like what Steve was talking about, but it but it ends up happening, right? Because because either because we don't we think it doesn't matter, or because we're no one wants to talk about that at church. Uh, did any of you get to what taking the beast's mark might look like today? What are some things we do to get by? That we know we maybe actually really shouldn't be doing, but it's easier. What's that? We'll
1: fake
0: okay.
2: <laughs>
1: to add, that <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I went through, a, I went through a, a men's study one time, and we, in the, I think the book's called, the name was Double Bind, and it just took you through scenarios that most men went through to the men's study, where you have to decide, do I work the two extra hours a night to get the promotion, or do do I go home at the regular time to be with my kids? And there's these different things, I can't of them, but different things where you kind of have to decide what your priorities are and what God are you living for, and
0: any of those on that list, which I couldn't name off of my head right now, would be a good example. So that, I think that's a great example. You know, there's a, there's a particular way our culture tells us good, healthy Uh, Families are supposed to look. Uh, Anyone have to participate in the Mommy Wars? Some of you didn't have to. That's good for you. Okay. uh, Google it. It's a thing. (laughs) Uh, No, no, no. Mommy Wars are like, who's the best mom? So do you, you know. Yeah, right. All the, you know. Yeah. All that. Yeah. 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 And we have all this rhetoric about what what makes a good kid, what makes a good parent, What and all of this. And and I see parents, both moms and dads in the church, caught up in all of that stuff. And there are probably some actually really good answers and really good techniques in the middle of all of that, but rarely in those discussions, even inside the church, do I hear anyone asking, "Well, well, how is this kid being shaped to be a Christ follower in all of this? Yeah. So... Um, you know, if my kids at soccer practice seven nights a week and has games the other six nights of the week, uh, is this actually teaching them healthy, God honoring boundaries on their time? Is it actually teaching them that they're not defined by what they achieve; they're defined by their character? Well, probably not. And that doesn't mean anything wrong with soccer. It just means that our culture has some really unhealthy ideas about sports. Which is probably not news to anyone in here. If you've ever turned on a game, on the television. I think
1: it's a lot worse than what it was 20 years ago. Sure. I, I don't know. It's. Uh, yeah, I've seen or I've read some really good articles on the sports, and how kids are doing the day and day Being nine is ridiculous. hmm Yeah. Do well, they
0: have
1: taken all kinds of drugs now to make yourself capable of playing those games better, so they can be the stars. That's drawing draw. draw yeah. your,
2: you draw your kids away from Christian Yes. Well, not, not just that, though. I, I mean, I've talked to dads that they have a 12, 13, 14 year old boy that they have on you know, whey protein, not a legal drug or anything. But, but they're pumping this kid with whey protein and working him out so that he could be that bigger of a football player when he gets to high school. I mean, they're.
0: And maybe there's nothing wrong with that. But are we even asking if that's something that God would have for our child? And prop, I mean, my initial reaction is like, but, you know, if someone says, you know, here's all my scriptural justification for whey protein, I'd be at least willing to listen. But I've yet to hear anyone uh, take that approach. I've yet to hear anyone say, well, no, actually, this this regiment that we have them in is actually an essential part of their spiritual formation. You know, we don't, we just say, well, if they, if you want them to be the best, best being how the way our culture is defining the best. Not the way God is defining the best.
1: Isn't there one place in the Bible where it says something about having a lot of physical exercise does you very little bit of or something very similar to that? That
0: right. sounds like a proverb. No,
1: yeah. I think Paul said that in uh, our oh, okay. He said, exercise is fine, but spiritual exercise is even better. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, you spend time with Christ and not your own body, which mm-hmm. is what like you're building up, but you walk your own ego. Yeah. The church ought to have a discussion on what, what really is a balanced uh, Christian lifestyle look like. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we talked about the Amish. I mean, maybe that's too extreme, but I think we're getting away from Yeah, the
0: idea sure. sure. All right. These ideas are going to have to percolate because we're already way past time. Uh, and I love talking about this stuff. It um, seems like we never have enough for application. Uh, next week is Halifun Weenie here, so we are not allowed to have Revelation class, so come and have a trunk or something like that. But for the week after that, Read chapters 14 through 16. And then here are some questions for you. What similarities do you see to what's already happened in Revelation? There will be some. And so then, in light of what's happened so far in this vision, in chapter 12 and moving forward, where does this fit in? Where, where are we getting to in the, in the plot of this story so far? What's confusing, what's clear? Just as always, focus on the things that are clear. Uh, have fun with the things that are confusing. But don't get too bent out of shape about them. And then bonus question. This is, again, one of my like highlight fun parts. What do the two harvests in chapter 14 represent? So that's something you can uh, kind of puzzle out over the next couple of weeks. Uh, let's pray together, and then we can be dismissed. God, as always, we're grateful to gather and study your scriptures, and we ask that as we leave tonight, uh, you would give us eyes that would see uh, the the marks of the beast in our culture, these ways that we are tempted to just get along because our culture says it's better or because it makes it easier for us to live in this culture, but ways that are not ultimately honoring to you. Uh, We believe that your way is the way that makes us most fully human, and we want to be faithful image bearers of you in our culture. Uh, We don't want people to look at us and see good uh, cultural people. We want them to look at us and see you. And we want to faithfully represent you and be your witnesses and bear witness to you, not to the ways of our world. So we ask as we go from here, you would you would keep these things heavy on our hearts and in the forefront of our minds, and that uh, they would be things that we meditate on as we go throughout our week, and that when we come back together in a couple of weeks, that we would be ready to discuss these things, and that we we would be uh, even more assured of how we are to be transformed uh, into the image of your Son. And we pray all of these things in His name. Thanks, everyone. I will see you guys well see you around Sunday, probably if not before. We are one week behind.